Hear the word of God from John 1. And you can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. <clears throat> so it's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Family, hope you're doing well this morning. I'm so excited to start a brand new series, not because I was tired of the book of Psalms, I was actually really enjoying the book of Psalms, but I'm so excited to dive into the book of John with all of you. Loved our time in the book of Psalms the last few months, and our sort of kind of modus operandi here is that we go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So if we did a series in the New Testament, or a series in the Old Testament, next series is gonna be in the Old Testament, or vice versa. So we just did Old Testament, Psalms, and now we're in the New Testament. See, at Waypoint, we are people of the whole book, not just people of the book of Acts, and not just people of the New Testament. We want you to know the whole Bible. So for those of you, in case you were wondering, I want you to, I'm not just a New Testament type of preacher here, so I want you guys to make sure you know the Old Testament as well. So one day I will quiz you, and I'll walk up to you and just ask you a random question and say, is this in the Bible? And if you're wrong, I'm not gonna be happy, and there's nothing else I can do. St. <laughs> Jerome said this about scripture. The scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. Love that quote. But I also love how other writers have taken that quote and made a similar one about the actual Gospel of John itself. They say that the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a babe to drink in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And I love that image. I actually typed that in to Google. I didn't know who made that quote, because I heard it before, one of my seminary professors said it before. So I was like, who said that quote? So I typed in, elephant swimming, baby drinking. There's some really awesome pictures. <laughs> and the most common thing on Google actually says is, do elephants swim? Anybody know? Yes? I actually didn't click on the links, I don't know. <laughs> I was just curious if they did or not. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of effort for an elephant to tread water. I'm just saying. I'm not sure if they do. 
We're in the book of John, and we're in the gospel of John. I'm so excited to be in this gospel. Here's the purpose of the book. If you're wondering, what was the purpose of the gospel of John? It actually says it at the very end of the book. It says this. John chapter 20. At the very end of the book, it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Basically, John is saying, hey guys, let me tell you why I'm writing this book. I want to write, tell, share, and show you all these things about Jesus. I could write a ton more because Jesus did so many ridiculous things, I couldn't write it all in one book. But so that you, my readers, I come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing this, you might have life through him. Do you notice his progression? Telling the story of Jesus leads to faith, which leads to eternal life. What a wonderful goal, John, in, in his gospel. What a great goal for our church. What a great goal for your marriage. What a great goal for you. Goal for us is to say, we gather together this morning, or we come together as a family, where I personally live in such a way that I want to tell the story of Jesus so that you may believe he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, he's the chosen one, he's the very means of salvation, so that you can have eternal life. How is this faith fostered? What does John do to foster this faith? In short, I want to hear what John does. What, he does what all the other gospel writers does. He tells the story of Jesus. Guys, can I tell you, so many of us, we struggle with this idea of how do I share the gospel, right? And if you really struggle with this, I got good news for you. January 26th, we have a gospel conversations training that I want every single person at Waypoint Church to attend at some point. Now, I know you can't, might not all be able to attend this one, but here's what I want all of us to do. See, we at Waypoint really believe, we have a saying that we say, we say every member is a missionary. In other words, what that means is every member that comes to this church, every member that's a part of this family, we're on mission together. You're not here just to gather together. We're not here to pat ourselves on the back on Sunday morning. We're not here to have a good, feel-good social club. We're not here to have a country club. We're not here to be a, a group that kind of gets together and does good services. We're here on mission together. And our mission is to see the kingdom of God, our mission is to see the kingdom of God advance for God's glory. And the way we believe that happens is by us making disciples. We need to share the good news of Jesus with others. Because let me tell you, when that happens, when we make disciples, when we make other believers of Jesus, when we make other followers of Jesus, as we cultivate disciple making, what happens is that his kingdom advances, and where his kingdom advances, justice and mercy reign. Reconciliation happens. Peace happens. And so we are people who believe in this, so what we want to do is we want to equip you to be people who are trained up and knowing how to have conversations with people so they can share the good news of the gospel. But all you really need to do is tell people about Jesus. That's what John did. John, that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. They just basically said, here's, here's what Jesus did. He, he healed the blind. He fed the hungry. He sacrificed himself and he died upon the cross and he was resurrected. This beautiful story of Jesus is what leads others to see that the glory of God in Jesus so that they can believe that he is who he says he is. He is the very means of salvation and he took upon himself the punishment that we all deserve so that a just, righteous God can also show us incredible mercy and that we can see what right relationship looks like. 
John tells the story of Jesus so that his readers might see the glory of Jesus, the Son of God, and that through this seeing they would believe, and that through this believing they would have eternal life. So I start with that saying, this is what the Gospel of John is all about. And this is so fitting for us, kind of, our theme every year, obviously, should be to share the gospel. So don't make this, oh, you don't do that every year? No, we do. We believe in sharing the gospel all the time. But we want to play, create a different emphasis this year. Just, there's only so many elements and aspects of God that we can emphasize at every moment. But what we want to really emphasize this time is, guys, we want you to know how to share the gospel. But here's the deal. We're not going to share the gospel, the good news with anybody, if it's not really good news to us. Am I right? Can I tell you this? What I really want you to do is I want you to hear and know who Jesus is, fall deeper in love with him, delight in who he is, so that your delight leads you, compels you to share the story of Jesus to people who don't know. So my prayer this morning, as we go into this, as we dive into the scripture, is will you fall deeper in love with Jesus? Will you just delight in who he is more? You guys ever notice how the gospels begin? It's very telling how the Gospels begin. If you look at Matthew and Luke, they begin the way you would expect a story to begin. The story of Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. Got the whole angels, the stables, the shepherd, the stall. All that really good stuff, right? That's the typical way. You start at the beginning. Mark, though, always in a hurry, so he can't be bothered with all that. He goes straight to the baptism of Jesus. He starts with Jesus at the joy with John the Baptist. And these three Gospels we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all of them begin with Jesus down here on earth in ministry in flesh and blood. But John starts completely different, totally different way. That doesn't try, he doesn't try to bring in Jesus. Instead, he, he, from the right off, from the very beginning, he starts off with a huge, bold proclamation that Jesus is God's son. He begins from up above. His eyes are turned heavenward, and he begins to tell the story of Jesus. He begins with some, some of the most poetic repeatable, kind of like this sublime way of just sharing of like who Jesus is in this incredible philosophical, poetic way. And these are famous words. And in these opening verses, John introduces us to the centerpiece of the whole gospel. This is often referred to as the prologue of the book of John. John's gospel, if you actually take the whole gospel, it can be divided into two parts. The first 12 chapters kind of introduces us to the signs and miracles that Jesus performs, giving us kind of a clue into his real identity. It's kind of known as, this is the first of the signs. So the first part of the gospel is called the signs part. The second half of the gospel is referred to, um, from chapter 14 to the end, he kind of, Jesus withdraws from the world and focuses his ministry upon his disciples, kind of giving them the mysteries and the profound discourses that he gives. The upper room discourse in John 14 and 15, the high priestly prayer. Um, this is often referred to as the book of glory. So the first half is called the book of signs, the second half is referred to as the book of glory. And this is what we call the prologue, this beginning first 18 verses of John. So diving into this prologue, here's what I want us to get. I want us to see the three stages of glory that Jesus Christ, that he unfolds in the course of this prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's just look at those first three words really quickly, in the beginning. When you hear those words, when you read that, what does it immediately remind you of? Where does it take you in your mind? Genesis 1, immediately, right? That's where the way the book of Genesis begins. It's the way the first book of the Bible opens. In the beginning, God created. You see what John's doing here, right? 
John's taking you further back than any of the other gospels. Matthew kind of goes back to Abraham in this first chapter, but that's not far enough. John's saying, let's go all the way back. To understand who Jesus really is, you have, to go, you have to grasp something about the glory of Jesus. You have to go back to the very beginning. You have to go back to that moment when matter was formed and particles came together and atoms and molecules all came into existence by the word of God. If you want to know who Jesus is, that's where you have to start. What John is saying is that at that moment when creation came into being, the word of God, namely Jesus, already was. He already had existence. And if he was there at the beginning, then Jesus Christ is not to be thought of as a part of creation. He's uncreated. He's not a part of the world. He's not a part of the universe. He's not a part of the solar system. At the very moment when this creation was brought into existence, he already has been. He already was. He already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. The Greek term translated word in this verse is the word logos. We see this word incorporated into a variety of technical terms. Biology, logi, L-O-G right there, that part. So logi doesn't really make sense, but I'm just gonna say it anyway. It's the word about living things. Theology, word about God. So this term logos, a simple translation is word, but it has a lot of philosophical baggage in ancient Greek world. Ancient Greek philosophy was concerned with answering the ultimate questions of reality. They were seeking to find the ultimate truth, this kind of fundamental, ultimate reality that lies behind all other things. Over time, the ancient philosophers pondered these questions. They came up with a term to describe this ultimate reality, this fundamental truth that existed behind everything else. And the term they came up with was this word logos. Logos came to be understood as that which gave life and meaning to the universe. Within the realm of Greek philosophy, this logos was largely understood to be an impersonal force, not a personal being. My professor in seminary, a guy named Dr. McKenzie, he was the ultimate name dropper without meaning to be. You know, he's one of those guys that he would tell stories, this is at RTS, and he would tell stories, but all his stories would begin with Albert Einstein and I were hanging out over coffee. And I'm like, Albert Einstein? And I loved it. He was a head of philosophy at Princeton and at Stanford. And while at Princeton, he would, say, he would sit down, he said, I had this conversation with Al. I don't know if he said Al, I'm just making that part up in my mind now. He might have said Albert, but I'm gonna go with Al. And I was having this conversation with Al, and we were talking about this idea of this ultimate reality, and Albert was like, yes, yeah, I believe in that. There is an ultimate reality that's behind all this stuff shot in mystery, and Albert believed that to be the theory of relativity. And Dr. McKenzie was sharing, well, Al, I believe you're right. But McKenzie, I'm, I'm a terrible, this is my impersonation of it, but I'm really bad with impersonations. But McKenzie said, yeah, I believe you're right, there is something, but his name is Jesus. Is that the theory of relativity? He said later on he had a conversation with Stephen Hawking at Oxford. I love Stephen, I get to do my name dropping through his name dropping, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> and he had the same, the same conversation, he says, what is this ultimate reality? What is this, the truth? What is this fundamental being, state, reality, whatever it may be, that's behind everything else, that gives meaning or places in purpose or in direction everything else? And there was this searching for that. And when we come to John 1, we see that the apostle has done two things with the term that would be unthinkable to Greek philosophers. Rather than impersonal, the logos of John's gospel is a personal being who can be received or rejected by other people. This logos also became incarnate as a human being and manifested the glory of God. 
See, what John was doing was so intentional. He's saying, all you Greek philosophers, you're looking for the hidden reality, the hidden meaning, the hidden reason for existence, what gives purpose to the universe. And let me tell you, it's not just an impersonal force. It's, as a matter of fact, it's a personal force. It's Jesus. But not only is it a personal force, he became human. He became incarnate. And his name is Jesus. He is God, but at the same time, he's with God. He's face to face with God, literally towards God, moving in fellowship and harmony with God. There is one God, but within that one God, there is a plurality. There is one, within their oneness, there is more than one. I know, so ridiculously confusing, right? We'll get some more about this later on. But there is, there is a God, there is a Father, there is a God the Son, and although this prologue doesn't specifically mention him, there's also God the Holy Spirit. And John wants us to understand that before the creation of the world, before any matter or particles have come into existence, the word of God already had being. And that word of God, Jesus Christ, was in fellowship with the Father. Now why is he telling us this? Why is this so important? Because he goes on to say in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known has made him known. In the New American Standard Translation, it says he has exegeted him. In other words, do you want to know what God is like? Of course you do. And John is saying God is like Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has been enjoying the closest possible fellowship with the Father for all eternity and has come into this world to show us what the Father is essentially like. Can I tell you something, guys? Do you want to know who God is? Then you need to know Jesus. And what, what John is so clearly saying here is that, guys, this powerful being, this force that controls and gives meaning to the whole universe, that, that puts the universe in perspective, that gives meaning to reality, that makes reality real in any way, shape, or form, this God is no longer impersonal, is no longer unknowable. In the fullness of time, he said, I will be, make myself known, and he became incarnate, he became man, and he's Jesus Christ. Do you hear this? This impersonal force, this God, has become known to us so that we can know who this is. The second stage in this path of glory we see in prologue is Jesus is the creator. Not only was he always has been, always existed, he's also creator. Verses three and four says this, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He's saying at least two things, that Jesus created everything and that he is the one who sustains everything. That's it. It's so simple to say. Jesus created everything and he sustains everything. Creation and everything in it is in the hands of Jesus Christ. He may be unrecognized by the world, but look again, he is God. Not only because he pre-existed with God from before creation, but also because all characteristics of godhood, of deity, are expressed by him. He creates all things and upholds all things. Why is that important? Because one of the things that John wants to tell us is that Jesus' great ministry is to recreate. You know, if you're a Christian tonight, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are part of a new creation, if any man, if, if, if you are new, then you are, as a believer in Jesus, you are a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, is what Paul says. What's taking place in the heart and soul of a believer in Jesus Christ is an act of recreation. I think that's why John's referring so much to this creation here in this opening chapter. He literally wants you to know that not only, does, not only is Jesus before all of creation, he always existed, but he's also creator. And in knowing that, he also knows and says to you that he can recreate. 
If we're going to skip a little bit to the end, a little teaser, at the end of, end of the gospel, chapter 20, Jesus comes in his resurrection body, and he does something extraordinary. He breathes on his disciples. It's an extraordinary passage, and we'll talk about it later on as we get to the end of, this is probably going to be like in May, to the end of the series, we'll talk about it again. But he does something incredible. He comes after he was resurrected, and he breathes on his disciples. Why did he do that? Why did John refer to that act? None of the other gospel writers even refer to it, but why does John refer to that act? It's because John did something also in the beginning of, 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 of his prologue. He talks about in the, in the beginning. He goes back to Genesis. He's going back to Genesis again. Because do you remember what happened in chapter 2 of Genesis? Anybody? Say that again? God breathed on what? He breathed life. Right? God created dust out of the dust and ground, a human being, and he breathed life into it. And what John's referring to as Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things, that he was, what he's alluding to is that Jesus is the one who's breathing new life into his disciples. He's recreating what was broken through the fall. Guys, can I tell you something? It's so easy to look at lives and look at our lives and see that there is something broken, isn't it? You can look at sickness. You can look at the fights you just might be having. You can look at the relationship. It's, it's just Christmas time, and Christmas time is so great for some people, but so hard for others. And even when it's great for some people, typically the ones that it's really always great for are for the little kids. They're like, presents, yay! But when you're an adult, you're kind of like, oh, drama. Ah, oh, family issues. January, oh, how much debt did I go into for Christmas? It's so easy to look around and think, there's something broken. Easy to look around at your own heart and say, there's something broken. You know, one of the things I always say about marriage, one of the beautiful things about marriage is there's nothing like it that points out your need for Jesus. Because ultimately in marriage, you have the first time that I see for me is that somebody who really gets to know all of me, all my messed up issues, that's, and that's a human being, and in my getting to know all my messed up issues and becoming, being known by that person in marriage, my flaws, issues kind of keep on coming out. And in that process of that coming out, I realized, man, I'm more broken than I thought. Because we do a good job convincing our, ourselves and others that we're not that broken, right? But when you're living with somebody day in and day out, become more and more real with that person, that person points out pretty quickly how broken you are. <laughs> we're broken people with broken relationships in a broken world. And what, I, what John wants us to understand is Jesus, not only was he in existence before all of creation, but he also created and he sustains his creation. So what that means for us now is that what is broken, he can make new. So there's relationships that are broken in you. God can hear this very well. Your heart itself, who you are yourself, because I'm broken. Man, I'll tell you more and more as I look at my life and I evaluate myself, I look inside, I'm like, Ooh, I, I have some broken issues. I have some esteem issues. I have some issues of worth and I have some issues of openness and vulnerability. I have so many issues. And my hope is this, because Jesus created, because he sustains his creation, he's able to create in me something new. He can fix my brokenness and make me new. Do you hear that? Guys, can I tell you this? Some of you guys are in, yeah, you're in broken situations. You yourself are broken. Jesus created the world. 
he created the heavens and the earth. He created the stars in the sky. He created the animals and all the beautiful mountains and oceans and all the life in this world. He can make something new in you. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? Third stage of glory that I want us to see in this process of the prologue is one, we saw that he existed before. Two, that he is creator that sustains. Three, the Son of God took on human flesh and all its weakness. The first stage has to do with Jesus' origin. The second stage with his, sorry, with his creation. The third has to do with his incarnation. Because the glory of Jesus is seen not only in the origin of Christ, not only in his creation, but also in his incarnation. Let's look at verse five. The light shone in the darkness. Verse nine, the true light was coming into the world. Verse 10 and 11, he was in the world. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, among us. Now flesh in the Bible is kind of the Bible's word for humanity. It's all its weakness and frailty. So what John is saying to us is that when Jesus was born, when Jesus became incarnate, when the only true God took to himself in addition, he he came in himself and took on full humanity, its low estate, its low condition. He didn't come born in a palace. He didn't come silver spoon in hand. He didn't just come and hover above us. He actually physically came into this world. He made his dwelling among us. In the New Living Translation, John here says in verse 14, he says, he made his home among us. John is actually saying, this is the way I like to talk about it, as he literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And what is the significance of that? What is the significance of the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the one place in the Old Testament where a holy God and sinful men and women might meet together. Do you guys remember um, the, back, in the, back in the Old Testament, one of the t- places where, um, where, the, the, where the, the locations were something called a tent of meeting. And this is where the tent of meeting is where the glory of God, the Shekinah glory cloud of God, shined in all its magnificence. And it was that place where sinners could come into fellowship and communion with God. Danny Aiken has this quote. It says, just as a Hebrew Shekinah glory, the bright cloud of God's glorious person settled upon the tabernacle, even so in Christ, God's glorious person dwelt among men, and that they beheld, gazed upon, and examined his glory. John is saying that his, this word, who was with God and was God, made his dwelling, made his home, made himself amongst us. He took flesh and blood. He came into this world as a human being. He lived our physical and social and spiritual environment. He shared our pains, our frustrations. The word was made flesh. He's saying what the author of Hebrews also says is that we do not have a high priest who doesn't get us, who can't sympathize with us and our weakness. We have a high priest who knows us inside and out gets us, knows our issues, and cares. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be exhausted. He knows what it is to be thirsty. He knows what it is to stand before a tomb and weep. He knows what it is to have his back lacerated and torn apart. He knows what it is to have nails pierce his hands and feet. He knows what it is to have thorns pushed down into his skull. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it means to be lonely. And you see what John is saying is just a little glimpse into the glory of Jesus Christ and who he is. 
We have a savior and a God, not just impersonal force that gives meaning, but an actual savior and God who said the way I want to reveal myself, and not just reveal myself, but the way I want to interact with my people is that I want them to know that I know. Do you get that? Guys, here's the thing, and this is what just blows my mind. I love so much about this God that we worship, is that if I was God, Right? If I was God and I wanted to reveal myself to mankind, my way of doing that would be totally different. If I was God, I'd be like 50 dragons flying across the sky, my name in like fire and lasers all across the sky. I am God and how I am awesome. That would be me. That's just me, I'm just saying. It would be totally different. It would not look the same. But I'm also not really qualified to be God. What is amazing about this God is what did he choose to do? He says, I want to have intimate relationship with the people I created. And the way I can do that is if I keep myself always as a a transcendent, far away God that's all powerful and holy, then there's something missing in that beautiful understanding of intimacy. We don't have a high priest who doesn't get us. Instead, he said, for me to really reveal myself and build intimacy with my people, I will go to the lowliest state. I will become them. That's why he's God and I'm not. How powerful is that? Do you get that? That he came and entered into your place. He comes so that when you cry to him and say, God, I feel so alone. And when you go to him and say, God, I'm broken, he gets it. And you can trust that he gets it. That you don't feel alone in it. You don't feel alone in the midst of your circumstance and your situation. You can now know that there is a God who craved intimacy with you so much that he chose to be born in a manger. There's a God who loves you so much and creates intimacy and purpose for you so much that he chose to take on the frailty of human flesh. And a God who loves and cares so much that he chose to be beaten and crucified. Look at the responses of the, of the world. In verse 10 it says, the world didn't recognize him. It says in verse 12, his own did not receive him. Here is Jesus, God, in all his magnificence and glory and splendor, but men and women refused him. But look again in verse 12. This is beautiful. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The children of God and to receive, as one translation so beautifully puts it, is to receive one grace after another. Guys, do you hear this? Are you in darkness today? Are you in darkness this morning? Then Jesus is the light that pervades that darkness. Is your soul empty this morning? Is there a God-shaped void in your heart? Then Jesus, the word of God, is the one who can fill that emptiness. Guys, how do we receive that? How do we believe that? By believing in his name, John says, by believing and by trusting. By believing in him, we get to receive, and when we receive him, we get to be called children of God. Do you hear that? This God of this universe, this force that exists that gives meaning to all of reality, this force that Einstein and this force that Stephen Hawking was looking for, is clearly expressed and says, I will be known. I choose to be known. I choose to be known by my creation. I came on earth. I'm the creator that makes all things new. All that is broken in you. I I can be known by you. His name is Jesus Christ. And he knows you. He loves you. He calls you. 
And you can be made new in him. Do you choose to believe? Do you choose to receive? That he is who he says he is. He is the logos. He is the word. He is the reason for reality and existence. And when you do, you get this incredible privilege of being called children of God. Finally, for that time, for that first moment, for now until eternity, you can be known as children of God. You can be known and be loved and have purpose. My people, in this beautiful prologue, what do we see? It's meant to bring us to wonder, to awe, to reverence, to a sense of, to a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Do you see him? Will you fall deeper in love with him? And if you don't know him today, will you choose to believe? And believe me to people, it is a choice. Will you choose to believe? Will you choose to believe that he's the word and become a child of God? Let's pray.